Hear this reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 3 and 4. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For forty days and forty nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away, and angels came and took care of Jesus. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God. For the kingdom of heaven is near. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, a number of years ago, um, I worked for a boss who had a bad habit making both passive-aggressive and sometimes incredibly aggressive 
statements to me. Often it was behind closed doors so nobody could hear. There were a million little slices to my ego, my talent, my personhood. And then especially when it was behind closed doors, he would go beyond just slices to dropping atomic bombs on me. After about two, two and a half years of feeling the weight of this every single week, I finally decided uh, that all of the anxiety and all of the anger needs some sort of alleviation. And so I decided to go uh, start seeing a counselor. I started seeing uh, a counselor named Michael. Week after week, and month after month, I would go see Michael and I would bust in his office and I would just vent. I would barf up all of these feelings and this anger and anxiety that I had. And Michael never once gave me the impression that he was exhausted by me or my big feelings never indicated that he found me to be too much or overwhelming. For weeks and weeks, he just listened, and he asked me questions. And then one day, I busted into his office after an atomic bomb had been dropped on me that very morning. I was more angry and more wounded than normal when I came in because the emotion was still so raw and I busted in his office and I just unloaded all of it and he just calmly and gently said to me, Tom, do you know how deeply loved you are? I didn't even understand the question. What does the fact that I am loved have anything to do with that I have a passive-aggressive, aggressive boss who's berating me almost every day? How does the fact that I am loved help me survive working in an organization where this kind of behavior happens and no one either knows or no one cares to know that it's going on? I don't know what me being loved has anything to do with solving that problem. It would be a number of years before I knew the answer to those questions. It turns out, Tom First is a slow learner when it comes to things like feelings and high abstract ideals like love. Recently, I was reading in Matthew the passage that Mr. Don read for us today. And different pieces of it began to sort of click together for me. And I, I want you just to notice the sequence of events because the sequence of events matter to how we talk about these things. Notice that Jesus is first baptized. Then Jesus is tempted. And then 
Jesus begins to live out his calling. The sequence of this is vitally important to understanding who Jesus is, what Jesus was about, and how it matters that he embraces the fact that he's loved. I want you to notice that the baptism that Jesus experiences is not an action that he performs or that he contributes, but rather that he receives as a gift. And this is, this is an interesting observation because Jesus is a passive recipient of baptism. It is such a scandal that Jesus is a passive recipient in baptism that the early church doesn't even know what to do with this, even right down to the gospel writers. All four gospels handle this baptism differently because the gospel writers are trying to grapple with the fact that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, Jesus, who is the Messiah, is baptized by someone who is a lower status than him, how can that be the higher is supposed to baptize the lower? This is what John himself says, right? Oh, whoa, 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 you're superior to me. I'm not supposed to baptize you. You're supposed to baptize me. And so the early church is trying to make sense of this. The gospel writers are trying to make sense of this. But here's the bottom line. Jesus' baptism is a moment where his identity is most clearly seen. And it is not seen in what he accomplishes or what he does or what he initiates in the world. It is most clearly seen in who God says he is. If Jesus were obsessed with spiritual leadership, as many pastors can be, there's no way he gets baptized by someone who's lesser than him. If Jesus were obsessed with being a spiritual giant or a spiritual guru, then there's no way he submits to the baptism of a mere human being. But in Jesus' baptism, we don't see Jesus clinging to the identity or that is rooted in status or accomplishments, but we see Jesus' identity rooted in the baptism proclamation, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This love is the foundation of his self-understanding and the root source of how he feels about himself. There are people, including the gospel writers, who seem to be a little bit disappointed and confused as to why Jesus would submit to being baptized by a mere human. But that disappointment means nothing to Jesus. Other people's disappointment with him, whether it's mere disappointment or whether it's a more aggressive form of passive aggression or aggression, means nothing to him because he knows that he is the beloved son of the Father. And faithfully, and living faithfully to his true self, he disappointed a lot of people. 
Jesus was secure in his father's love in himself and thus was able to withstand enormous pressure. Do you see how the pressure and the love are connected? And here's the reality. That pressure that Jesus experienced was as real as the pressure you and I experience. The pressure is the constant temptation to be something other than who God created us to be. To find our identity in some person's approval rather than God's proclamation that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God. It is not surprising that after Jesus hears at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, it is not surprising that immediately after hearing that, he encounters the temptations to find his identity in other things. The, the, the stories of baptism and temptation are butted up against each other in the Gospels for a reason. Because the only way to counter the temptation to falseness is by being assured of the fact that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God. I remember when I first became a Christian, and this is not entirely wrong, but I, but I want to sort of illustrate this. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was listening to uh, my pastor preach on the temptations of Jesus. And the whole point of his sermon, I remember, was, listen, anytime you're tempted, just quote scripture at the devil. Have you ever heard that? I feel like that, that's the main sermon that I've heard around the temptations is, Nobody explains why the temptations were powerful or like exactly what they were temptations to, but like, it's like, well, anytime you're tempted, just quote scripture at the devil and like, you'll be okay. So I remember like, I'd be like, you know, in the hallway at school and like this girl I had a crush on walked by and I'd be like, oh man, Lord. And I'd quote some Psalm about like protecting my eyes, you know, and it didn't work. I was like, but this is, this, is, this is how Jesus, you know, passed the temptation tests. Like, he just quoted scripture. But, but there's so much more than just like the ability to just like quote scripture. Loads of people know scripture. That doesn't make them godly. You know what makes someone godly? is not even the ability to pass the temptation. What makes us godly is when our identity is first rooted in the fact that we are loved. And then all of our actions spring up out of that. To be our true selves. To resist temptation to be something other than who God created us to be. We must know ourselves as God knows us. And here's what's really interesting. Um, I have never heard this talked about outside of seminary classrooms. So like this is, this is not super nerdy but like. There are theologians that debate whether the temptations were actually real for Jesus. They were like, the debate is, did Jesus really feel tempted? Like, was he actually like sort of swayed to maybe do this? Or was, you know, because Jesus is God, was he just like, get out of here, Satan. Like, this is nothing to me. It's not a real temptation. And so... 
there's this sort of debate happening, and I think that the answer is actually that it doesn't make sense for all the Gospels to talk about the temptations if they weren't actually real temptations to him that he actually felt and experienced, things that he was attracted to. Things that might have appealed to Jesus' desire to rescue the world or to save the world or to protect the world. This is everything the devil brings to him in the temptation. Is It turns out they're all things that Jesus ultimately did want to accomplish. He's tempted with good things. To feed the world with bread. To feed the world with bread. To organize the world with God's politics. To prove God's interactions in the world by taking risks. Jesus has a genuine desire to protect and rescue the world. Jesus feels like none of us have ever felt the experience of pain and suffering because Jesus is God and as God in the flesh has entered into human suffering. To deny the realness of the temptations would be to deny the pain that Jesus feels. And when we deny our pain and loss and feelings year after year, we become less and less human. And Jesus was actually concerned to be more and more human. Thus his feelings and experiences all mattered. I sometimes have thought maybe the reason theologians want to deny that these temptations are real is because, um, or to deny that like Jesus has this full range of emotion uh, is because a lot of theologians, like a lot of academics, um, live largely within their heads uh, rather than in their feelings. But that would probably be to let the rest of us off too easy, right? To just be like, well, you know, the nerds, they don't have feelings, but the rest of us, we have feelings. No. Most of us spend a good part of our lives either suppressing our feelings or deflecting the feelings we don't want to feel onto other feelings that are more comfortable with us. This is what I do. Mine is a deflection. I feel sorrow or pain or anxiety, and it comes out as anger. Not really overt yelling anger, but subtle anger. Most of us live unaware of our own feelings and pain. So believe it or not, when my counselor Michael asked me, Tom, do you know how deeply loved you are? I dismissed the question immediately because I didn't have an intellectual understanding of what that meant. I didn't even understand for years why it had value. I think that what he was actually asking me was really he was telling me that in a moment of crisis, what was going to get me through this was not seething anger. What was 
going to get me through this was not schemes to dethrone my boss because I had them. I had like a hundred of them. Murder might have been one. It was not anger and it was not vengeance. It was not bitterness and it was not excuses. And in fact, it couldn't maybe even be rationally made sense of what would help me survive was accepting that I am loved and my identity is not threatened by anything he could say to me or do to me. But he didn't ask me, Tom, do you know how deeply you were loved as a way of getting around my feelings? Do you know how sometimes like people, like when you're expressing emotion and people are uncomfortable with it, they'll like sort of try to get around your feelings. He didn't do that at all. I think what he was doing was he was trying to get me to embrace my feelings, to be more human by engaging my feelings, which is why at the end of that same session, I'm already intellectually confused. And then Michael says to me, Tom, when you are in your boss's office and he's berating you, where do you feel that in your body? What does that even mean? I, I was just like, I was like, I, I'm very good at just like keeping a straight face. I was like, I don't know. But inside I was like, what kind of hippie, weird, obnoxious, like, and so he was like, well, if you don't know, like, why, why don't you think about it and, 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 and come back and we'll talk about it. And what I said was, sure, okay. I'm telling you, I was done. Like, I was going in week after week after week. I was not coming the next week. Or the week after, I was like, I'm going to see another counselor who is not high. <laughs> well, about a month later, I'm sitting in my boss's office, and he begins to do that thing that he did all the time. And I felt my jaw get really tight and I felt my throat get really constricted and I felt this like burst of energy that was coming out of my chest into all of my limbs and I was like oh my gosh I have feelings in my body and so I went back, I set up another appointment with Michael, and I was like, I, I, I feel it in my jaw, and in my throat, and my, 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 my chest, and my, my fingers feel it. And he was like, good. <laughs> he said, I suspect what's happening is that your body is telling you that it wants to raise its voice in that moment, but you're very aware of the consequences of raising your voice. And so you feel like you have no voice at all, and that energy is just going throughout your body. And I was like, yes, that's it. Thanks for telling me what I feel. And he was right. Uh, 
think that in order to understand the temptations, the temptation that I have to want to have, and maybe we all have, to have our bosses approve of us or our parents approve of us. Oh my gosh, Christmas, right? We got parents coming. <laughs> to have our aunts and our uncles approve of us or at least to like have the peace, right? The temptation is to be someone other than we really are so that we can find acceptance and approval with them. But I feel like what Michael was saying to me that day is, listen, Tom, you cannot fix your boss. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how perfect you are. It doesn't matter because it's not actually about you. That's his deal. What you need to do is embrace the fact that you are loved no matter how he responds to you. Your self-worth is not contingent upon whether your boss ever stops abusing you or your father or your mother or anyone else. I do not think that we can understand the full force of the temptations of Jesus unless we understand the emotional weight that Jesus would have felt in his body. Knowing that he had a desire to save the world. With a word, he could have saved and accomplished everything that he wanted. He could have done all of it. But here's the thing. His identity was not in changing the devil's mind. And his identity was not even in the mission of rescue. Do, do you see this? Jesus certainly will rescue us, but his identity is not first in the rescue. His identity is, I am God's beloved son. God is pleased with me. Turning the stones in the bread is the temptation to success, and Jesus didn't need the success to know that he was loved. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world as the temptation to possessions and political power, but Jesus didn't need political power to know that he was loved. The world will worship you as the temptation of popularity and idolatry, but Jesus didn't need the voice of the crowd because the voice from heaven said, this is my son, I love him. It is really fascinating to me that we have this kind of American Christianity that is rooted around behavior modification. That just, just do the good things, right? Just behave. This is why some of you, you drop an F-bombs every six day of the week, but you come in here and your real language is perfect. Because you're just like, you know what? Like, I gotta, I gotta modify my behavior when I come to church. No! I mean, don't come in with the F-bomb, but like, there are kids around. But, but what we do is we say, 
oh, like what Christianity really is is about me being on my best behavior. What Christianity really is is about moral modification. And so we then take that message, we go out into the world, and that's the message most people think Christianity brings, that we are a people who are trying to get everybody in a secular nation to behave as if it's a Christian nation without anyone actually being Christian. Does that seem like what Jesus was about? No one really needs to be Christian, but as long as we act like it, we're good and God's pleased with us? No. And this is what happens when you start your identity with the mission instead of starting our identity with the fact that we are loved. Jesus could have given in to the temptation and still accomplish the good things of the mission. He could have justified the temptations by saying, well, you know, it'll help everybody be on their best behavior. And all of these things were accomplishing God's will, right? But his identity was not in behavior. His identity was not being the good guy or making other people. His identity was not in making sure that religious people liked him or his identity was not in rescuing the world. His identity was first the fact that he is loved, which is why after the temptations, then Jesus can successfully live God's mission. Matthew says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Do you see? From that time on is a timing marker. From what time on? From the time that he passes the temptations because he knows he's loved. John leaves, his baptizer leaves, and now the way is clear for Jesus to live the mission. The mission was not first, the baptism was first. Christian mission flows out of baptism identity. Thus, even our life as Christians is not something we do, but something we receive. To quote one world-renowned scholar, Jesus did not instruct his followers, notice the word not, because we're about to get a list of really good things. Jesus did not instruct his followers to build or advance the kingdom of God. Rather, notice the passive language coming up. He invited his disciples to enter this domain by doing God's will. Receive this gift by assuming the posture of a child and find this path by having faith even as small as a mustard seed. We receive the Christian life as a gift that is built on the prior acceptance that I am loved and God is pleased with me. So, what do we do with all of this? I think to remind ourselves that we are loved and that God is pleased with us before anything else, we've got to figure out a way to remember this. Martin Luther, the reformer, had a saying, a phrase. He would say, remember your baptism. 
This was his way of reminding the early Lutherans of their identity, was not in the mission, was not in their works, was in what they had received at baptism. It was his way of saying, listen, when life gets confusing and you feel lost in all the falseness, remember your baptism. Remember that you are God's child in whom God delights. So how do we remember our baptism? That's the question. How do we do this? Is there some big grand gesture that we have to do, some behavior we have to modify? And the answer is no. The Jewish creation, out of which Christianity arises, believes that sometimes remembering is as much rooted in the small gestures as the big gestures. So for example, after Moses gives the law, this is what he says, Notice how small these things are. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're walking on the road, when you're going to bed when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your forehead as reminders. Go ahead, do that. Tattoo, remember your baptism on your forehead. See how that goes for you. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It is the everydayness of the act of remembering that matters. Because every day we are faced with the temptation to root our identity in something other than the God who has said, you are my beloved child, I am pleased with you. So here's what I've done. On a seat near you, you uh, have a card that looks like this. And here's all I want you to do. There is a reason this card is laminated. It is a remember your baptism card. And it is designed to go in your bathroom when you're in the shower to look, as you are bathing to remember your baptism in that moment. Now some of you, you don't want to put it in your shower. You can put it up on the mirror in your bathroom because I think Lord knows it's when we're staring at that mirror that often we have the temptation to falseness, right? It says, Lord, as I enter this water to bathe, I remember my baptism. Wash me by your grace. Fill me with your spirit. Renew my soul. I pray that I might live as your child today and honor you in all that I do. Remember your baptism. You are the loved sons and daughters of God, and God is pleased with you.